Thanks for downloading and being a subscriber to the podcast for Cross Defense. I'm the host, Pastor Brian Wolf. Today we talk about, oh, we're going to talk about wrestling with God in prayer. And then Pastor Jeff Boyle joins us for a really interesting conversation about the Roman Catholic argument against the primacy of the Pope. It's a fascinating conversation. Thanks for downloading it. Thanks for sharing it with friends. Hope you find it helpful. Please stay in touch, and God's peace be with you. Welcome to Cross Defense. It's that time of the week where we consider the scriptures to ignite our imaginations with the Lord's great gift of theology, fighting back against the devil's temptation to theological boredom. Acadia, someone reminded me yesterday that this was one of the seven deadly sins, Acadia or Acadia, sloth uh, it's normally called, but it doesn't just mean laziness, it means, it means theological indifference. When Martin Luther, remember Martin Luther? When Martin Luther was talking about the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, he talks about the danger. It's not, it's not just of hating God's word, but it's of being indifferent to God's word. Or Other things are, are more exciting or wonderful to us than the Lord's word. So we're fighting back against that. That's the idea on Cross Defense. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman, the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Here's, what we're gonna, here's the plans. This is what we're going to try to do. We're going to talk first about wrestling with God. And we'll talk about Jacob, remember, on the fords of the Jabbok River. And we're going to talk about the, the Canaanite woman up in Tyre who Jesus calls a dog. We're going to talk about those two texts and what it means for us to wrestle with God. And then Pastor Jeff Boyle's going to come on. And he, I called him this morning and so said, I want to come on the show. And he's reading this book. I don't know what, he reads the funniest thing. He's reading this book about the Eastern Orthodox critique of the Roman Catholic claim to papal superiority now i know probably all of you are also reading <laughs> but we're going to see what we're going to see how that goes i'm interested in actually comparing i'm interested in comparing what the eastern orthodox say about papal supremacy to what the lutherans say about papal supremacy so we'll do that and also i've i've never met a, a, a catholic priest i've asked almost every catholic priest i've talked to this question why why do you take the promises that the lord jesus gave to peter and apply them to the, to the, to, you know, the people, the, to the popes, the people who follow after Peter, supposedly, and I don't know the answer to that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if Pastor Boyle knows what the claim is and how to talk about it. So that's coming up next. But first, the idea of wrestling with God. We're, we have two texts for this, and this is really, um, this time in the season of Lent as we're getting closer and closer to to Easter and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the celebration of it in the church. Uh, we remember we we're remembering all of these great uh, stories, and one of the stories that's brought to our mind this week is the story of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, and uh, and we'll get to that. But that but that story is really the New Testament parallel to the Old Testament story of Jacob. Now remember how it was with Jacob. Here he was. This he had stolen his brother Esau's birthright twice. He was a usurper. And he stole, especially the big deceit was when he dressed up like he was his hairy brother Esau and he cooked some stew and he and he pretended like he was Esau bringing venison to their father Isaac and he gets the blessing and then he runs for it. And he's 14 years gone. He's with his uncle. He has his wives, Leah and Rachel. They have uh, a bunch of kids uh, at this point and they're coming back. And Jacob is worried that Esau is going to see him and just kill him just demolish him so they're getting closer back to their home to the 
where the family was settled. And they get to this Jabbok River, and Jacob sends Rachel and Leah and all their stuff, all their children and all the maidservants and manservants and all their flocks and all the people looking after him, sends them over the river, and then Jacob stays on this side of the river, and Jesus shows up now, or an angel of the Lord, some character. Let's say this, let's say it like this as we get started. Some character shows up, a divine character there, and and what happens now? We know what happens because we know the story. I mean, unless you don't, and you're like, what? Well, what's going to happen? And and if you don't, it's actually quite wonderful to think about it. If even if you do know what happens, I'd like you to ask the question: What do I expect to happen? I mean, what normally happens when the Lord shows up? The Lord show, when, when Jacob was fleeing from Esau, the Lord showed up in a dream with this ladder that went from the rock where Jacob was resting up into heaven, and he saw angels ascending and descending. He had this marvelous vision, and he took that rock, and he made an altar, and he called the place Bethel, the house of the Lord. And we ex- maybe expect something like that, like when the Lord shows up, that, that, uh, that Jacob would have this great vision, or that Jacob would would fall down on the ground and worship the Lord. Or maybe Jacob would gather up the rocks and he'd build an altar and he'd make a sacrifice to the Lord. Or what do we expect the Lord to do? The Lord to come and to and to, to teach Jacob something or to speak to Jacob or to bless him in some sort of way. I mean, that's that's what we expect. We expect this to be a normal confrontation between a man, a sinner, and between the holy and living God. But that is not what happens. So here the Lord Jesus shows up and there's Jacob, and they're on the side of the river, and they look at each other, and then, wham! They start wrestling with one another. I mean, they just—you gotta. If you, this is an amazing thing to think about that they, whack! They they grab a hold of each other's shoulders, and they start grappling with each other, and 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 throwing each other down. And you gotta think, and they, and this just doesn't happen for like five minutes. It happens all through the night. So you got to think that Jacob takes a hold of this man and throws him down in the mud, and then this man takes a hold of Jacob and pulls his leg and gets him in a headlock, and now he's got his elbow and his back, and he's got pressing him into the mud of the Jabbok River and back and forth, and they're sweating, and they're they're breathing, and their heart's beating, and they're like, oh, hold on, and they rest, and then wham, they're back at each other again. Wrestling like this all night. That's... I mean, you just, you can't make this stuff up. You can't say that's a when Jesus shows up. You just start wrestling. You start fighting with them like some sort of great contest. And it's, and it's all through the night. I mean, you got to think that Jacob and uh, that, that Rachel and Leah are on the other side of the river and they hear the sound and they're like, what's happening over there? It sounds like he's fighting with someone. Who is he fighting with? There's no, was there someone over there? Do we need to go check on him? And all night they're, they're wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. Well, finally... Jesus is going to leave, and so he goes, book, and he pokes Jacob in the hip, and his hip comes out of socket, and, and he's so he's limping, and and Jesus is trying to get away, and Jacob grabs leg, and he, just like he did with Esau, he grabs a hold of him, and he won't let go, and he says, "Let me go." Not to, why do you want to know who I am? Uh, I won't. And they're fighting, and they're back and forth. He, he won't let go. And he says, I, I won't let go until you bless me. <laughs> who would have who would have thought? I won't let go until you bless me. Who are you? I don't going to tell you who I am. You are Israel, he says, because you have wrestled with God and with man, and you have prevailed. 
so that so Jacob's name to Israel, the one who wrestles. That's what Israel means. The one who wrestles with God and prevails. And so the Lord withdraws the curse and he gives him a blessing and off he goes. And, and Jacob now can go, Israel now can go with confidence to meet Esau. And sure enough, he goes to meet Esau and Esau embraces him. And it seems like there's a bit of tension, but all's well. Now, who can expect such a thing? I mean, who can even imagine such a thing? But how, this is how wonderful it is with Jesus that you never know what's going to be on the next page. It's just fantastic. And the other thing is that this is who we are. Now, we are Israel. We are the Israel of God. And that means that we are set in this life to wrestle with God. That's what we're supposed to do. And I think this is the picture of prayer, that prayer is wrestling with God, that we grab a hold of God according to his word, and we just don't let go. Lord, you've promised this. Keep your promise with me. Lord, you've said that you would do this. Do this with me. Lord, you said that your kingdom would come. Let your kingdom come to us. You said that your name would be hallowed. Let your name be holy with us. You've said that the, you forgive sins. Let our sins be forgiven. You said that your will will be done. Let your will be done with us. That we're saying that we're grabbing a hold of the Lord and saying we're not going to let you go until you bless us, until you keep your promises. And it's, there's this tenacity, this tenacity of faith that holds on to the Lord's word. And we see that in the Canaanite woman. So going from Genesis 32 to Matthew 15, verses 21 and following, where we hear the story of Jesus going up to Tyre and Sidon, to the region up there that's far up to the northwest. If you're looking at the map of the Holy Land, it's where it kind of, it kind the coast of the Mediterranean kind of comes down and it juts out a little bit. That's Tyre up there, north of Haifa, north of Mount Carmel. And you can see it. And Jesus is way up there. And here's this woman, a Canaanite woman. And she, she's got a demonized daughter. And she comes to Jesus. And she says, Lord, uh, in fact, she says, have mercy on me. Oh, Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon oppressed by a demon. And we want to see this interaction between this woman and Jesus. I mean, this is Jacob. She is tenacious, and she just doesn't, she doesn't let go. So here at phase one, Jesus doesn't say anything at all. He ignores her like she even, doesn't even exist. It's, it's just complete silence, which is what happens to us. I mean, how many times is that, that we're at, this is the, and the reason why the Holy Spirit has this text for us is because Jesus wants us to understand that this is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to pray. This is what it is to wrestle with God. I mean, how often do we read in the Psalms prayers like, how long, O Lord? Moses prayed, Psalm 90, how long? David prayed it, and Asaph prayed, and, and uh, all the guys who wrote the Psalms, they all pray, how long, O Lord? Because this is it. We pray, and we wonder, is the Lord even listening? Is he, is he hearing my prayers? It's just like silence from heaven. And this is how Jesus gives this lady the silent treatment, but she still presses in. And we, you know, from the other parables of Jesus, know how much he loves it. He does the parable. Remember the parable of the guy who goes and he knocks on his neighbor's door. Hey, let me. And he says, no, I'm in bed. And he doesn't stop. He's just knocking, 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 knocking until finally he gets up because not because he loves his neighbor, but because he's annoyed by the neighbor. And Jesus says, this is how you ought to pray. You just annoying heaven. We think, well, we don't want to be a bother. But no, that's what Jesus says. 
I'm authorizing you. In fact, I'm commanding you. I'm instructing you to be a bother, to be tenacious, to not. And she's bothering him. And finally, the disciples say, send her away. And Jesus says to the disciples, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, at that point, Jesus, if you came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, up in Tyre and Sidon, hmm? I mean, this whole thing seems like Jesus is going to this place to bless this lady. And it seems like she's on to it. So she falls down at his feet and says, Lord, help me. So now Jesus finally addresses her. And he and, and and at this point, I think most of us would be done because Jesus looks at her and he says, it's not right to take the food from the children and throw dogs, he says. <laughs> Can you? I mean, you and me, there we're there, we're praying and there's silence and then we're praying and the Lord says, I didn't come for you. And then we pray some more and he says, it's not even right to answer your prayers. And we say, OK, fine. If you don't want to help, fine. I'll go find some other savior. I'll go. There's plenty of Ashtoreths and Baals and Moleks around here. I'll go pray to them for help. No, fine. If you if you were to call me a dog and insult me and all this, I'm I'm leaving. But this lady, this beautiful, wonderful Canaanite woman, this teaches us better than that to think to know what to do better. She does not, she's not turned away by Jesus' statement here. It's not right to take the food from the children and give it to the dogs. She, the, <laughs> she grabs a hold of it, like Jacob grabbing the Jesus and not letting go. She grabs a hold of those words that Jesus says. <laughs> this is the best. She grabs a hold of it and she says, okay, fine, fine. I'll take it. You give me a word, I'll take it. You call me a dog, I'm a dog. And I'm not asking for anything more than the dogs get. I don't want you to pull up a, ta a chair for me. I don't want you to set a plate there right at the family dinner. I don't want you to call me one of your own children, your daughter, anything else. I just want you, I'll be, a, I'm fine to be your dog. Because even the dogs get the scraps that fall from the master's table. Yeah, I mean, did you get it? That word, you can't see it in the English, that word for master. Ooh, I better check on this. I'll check on during the break. That word for master is the same word for Lord. Even the dogs get the scraps that fall from the Lord's table. And that's all I'm after. I'm just after the scraps, the crumbs. If you call me a dog, I'll just be a dog. And, and she grabs a hold of that word, and she won't let go until the Lord blesses her. <laughs> Luther's the best on this. I love, I love reading Luther on the sermon because he says she, he had Jesus according to his word, and that's just what he wanted. He wanted to be had according to his word, and he, she doesn't let him go. And Jesus turns with his smile on his face. You think his, his he and he says to he commends her like he commends no one else in the Gospels. Oh, woman, he says, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And from that instant, her daughter was healed, never to be bothered again. And now her whole family is a Christian family. This is just exactly what Jesus wanted. And it's why I, Jesus turns to Matthew after this and says, don't forget to write this thing down. Don't forget this story. Don't forget to put this in the Gospels because this woman is our teacher now. She's our instructor on what it means to come to Jesus in prayer, to wrestle with the Lord, and to grab a hold of what looks like an insult and to demand that the Lord would give us the blessing.
So the Lord says, hey, And the Lord says that to every one of you who's, and, we, and that's an insult. We, oh, how, but we don't walk away offended. How could he dare call me a sinner? No, we grab a hold of it and say, yes, Lord, but even sinners are died for by Christ. Yes, Lord, but even sinners, uh, you have mercy on sinners. Yes, Lord, but you're, the blood of Jesus washes away the sin. Yes, Lord, the death of Jesus is to go to everlasting life. So we grab a hold of the Lord according to that word that he we're not, we're not offended by the insult. We grab a hold of it and we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Bless me. Forgive my sins. Rescue me. Deliver me. Lord, I'm sick. Heal me. Lord, I'm dying. Raise me. Lord, I'm weak. I'm nothing. Make me something. Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive my sins. That we grab a hold of the Lord according to his promise and, and we don't let go. We say, give me then what, what you promised. And this is prayer. This is prayer. To, to wrestle with the Lord. To grab a hold of him according to the promise that he gives and that's just exactly what he wants <laughs> from you from you you're listening to me this is um, this is what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in these texts that we grab a hold of the Lord and that we don't let go and then his face turns. he says as you wish your sins are forgiven as you wish, heaven is opened. As you wish, eternal life is yours. You're part of my family. I love you. <laughs> Everything that's mine belongs to you. <laughs> God, God be praised. You're listening to Cross the Fence. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church. Let's go to the break, and then Pastor Boyle is going to be back to talk to us about something. Stay tuned. This week on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Joseph, the guardian of Jesus, with Dr. Arthur Just. We'll have Pastor Peter Bender lead us in a teaching on coveting and the parable of the rich fool. And we'll talk with Dr. Ben Mays about priestly celibacy during the Reformation. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology, we are Worldwide KFUO. During the season of Lent, Worldwide KFUO will be broadcasting live Lenten worship services from Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis each Wednesday morning at 11 during Lent on AMA 50 and KFUO.org. Observe the season of repentance, renewal, and forgiveness alongside KFUO and the members and pastors of Peace Lutheran Church. That's each Wednesday morning at 11 during Lent on Worldwide KFUO. We're the messengers of good news.
Each weekday on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of living boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Dr. Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolf. You're there. And I'm joined by a pastor, my friend, Pastor Jeff Boyle. Pastor Boyle, how are you? Wonderful. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining. Hey, well, remind me the names of your 17 churches again. How can we have so many <laughs> churches over there? Just, just two, Grace and Trinity. And uh, oh, they're okay. doing wonderful. Grace yeah. and Trinity. Yeah. And so also, congratulations, you, between... The between, I think between the last time you were on and this time, you submitted your uh, your thesis for your Doctor of Theology. Congratulations on that. That's right. Thank you. What is it? What was the title of your thesis? To give us a. Is it a real thesisy kind of thing? Like the title is written to make sure that nobody ever reads it? <laughs> no, actually, it was the same. So we we discussed really the thesis uh, last time, but the. The title is The Real Presence of Christ in Scripture, a Sacramental ah, Approach that's to right. the that's right. Testament. And if, if that doesn't make you want to read it, great. there's something wrong, I think. No, that's great. No, I think I, I think that is actually an appealing title. You know how it seems like, though, the book's titles, like when you go back a couple hundred years and you have the titles of these books and they're like, uh, they're like paragraphs. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's it's it, they need a title page because that's how big the title actually is. It like fills a whole page. So that's right. Uh, that's great. Well, congratulations on that. God be praised. Thanks. May it be a blessing uh, to the to the Lord's church. You you told me that you were working on another book when we talked this morning, though. And, and is that still? Have you changed your mind, or is that still what? We- no, let's let's keep it. It's uh, I should clarify another uh, book. Not that I'm writing, but that I'm reading. Yes, that's right. Uh, which is easier? Uh, uh, you told me that it's a book. Uh, uh, it, did I? So from this morning to now, do I remember it? Uh, or an Eastern or peak of the claims of papal supremacy? Yeah, it's it's a book called The Primacy of Peter, and what it is is it's a series of five essays written by different Orthodox theologians, brought together largely around the idea of Rome's ecumenical push that follows Vatican II invites other communions, let's say traditions, to uh, to kind of interact with Rome in a way that we couldn't in a way before. And so for the Orthodox especially, who have had this longstanding uh, rift between them and Rome, largely over this issue of, of the Pope, um, it's kind of a reevaluating of the Orthodox arguments against the primacy of Peter and and how they're to kind of think through this with an Orthodox lens. So, so let's start. Let's start with some uh, ABCs here, uh, just on the idea of the primacy of Peter, because I mean, you know, you could hear that primacy of Peter, and what does that even have to do with the Pope? I mean, why would 
what does the Pope and the primacy of, of Peter have to do with one another? So walk us through the claims of the Catholic Church, and maybe if it's possible to give some historical perspective on this, too. Yeah, well, I think one place, uh, maybe to ground us in our Lutheran framework a little bit, would be to look briefly at the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Uh, this was and it's within our Book of Concord. It was kind of attached to the small called Articles in 1537. And what it is is it's Philip Melanchthon working through the main difficulties we have with the claims of Rome. And, and we, we list three. Okay? So real briefly, we say the Roman pontiff claims for himself that he is supreme above all bishops and pastors by divine right. That's important. Two, he adds that by divine right, he has both swords, that is, the authority also to enthrone and depose kings, regulate secular dominions and such. And third, he says that to believe this is necessary for salvation. For these reasons the Roman bishop calls himself and boasts that he is the vicar of Christ on earth. Okay, so that's now, now, rooting it. Or, or, yeah, go on. Is that is that um? So if I was to go to your standard everyday Catholic priest next door and say, "Hey, does the Pope does the Pope claim these three things?" How would that conversation go? Uh, well, I think you would say yes. Now, as far as the second claim of the right of the swords, you know, certainly the Pope still is the head of the Vatican State. So, I mean, there is still a, a state there. Certainly the world and the landscape of the, the governments of the world has changed drastically since the 16th century and, and even more so since maybe the 4th century. But, uh, but you have... Um, a strong interlocking, at least in the 16th century, between the church and the state, whereas today, particularly here in America, that seems like a very foreign concept. So they, they may that, kind of that, further that, on that, that second issue. That, that came up when, like, for example, JFK was elected to, to be president, and there's all these, you know, Kanaka. But, but I, now, explain what you mean by both swords. Um, what, when, the, when the Pope claims the authority of both swords, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, the, really, we would say it speaks of his ruling in two kingdoms. You know, there's, uh, there is in this way that he has not only right over the church, we sometimes use it in terms of two um, two hands or two two ways of governing, but God governs the world and he governs the church and he uses one hand to govern the church that is through his word and by grace, and he uses uh, the other hand, the coercive hand, to govern the world, and that is to, to keep it in check from its own sinful self so that it would not be left with chaos. And and for the Pope to claim to himself by divine right not only to establish churches and bishops, but also kings and princes and governments, he is setting himself as uh, the an incarnation, so to speak, of God operating and ruling in both worlds or, or realms. 
I, I was reading uh, Unum Sanctum. I read it often, yeah. just because I'm sure. But, I love it. It's a for, for what? It's like thirteen oh six, twelve oh six, thirteen oh six, something oh six. Old. It's an old document, and um, yeah. and they and it's it's asserting the Pope's authority, both the spiritual authority in the church and the temporal authority in the world, and the scriptural proof that's used is the text right before Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he's betrayed. And Jesus says, you'll take us, take up a sword. And Peter says, here are two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. And the, and the Unum Sanctum says, when Jesus says that's enough, he gave to Peter the authority of, of both swords. That's, their, that's the biblical proof that's given uh, for that doctrine. I remember I was showing that to a friend of mine who is the Catholic priest down the street, and he says, uh, yeah, that's not very good. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder what the what the biblical um what the biblical uh, uh proof is if they even make an attempt to prove the authority of both swords from the scriptural text yeah well and see that's in itself interesting because the bible is largely in these conversations used as a proof text in such a way that just by asserting it that's all there is and then when you do show that to a roman catholic today oh that's, that's kind of embarrassing in a way. Um, really, for them, it's, it's the tradition, and it's what's been received. And, and that is uh, almost of a higher priority here. And, and if there is anything, uh, it wouldn't be the swords as much as it is to simply assert that Peter has the primacy. Uh, and, and this is the overarching issue by divine right over all the apostles, overall bishops, pastors, and so forth. And, and that in itself is a claim that I think needs to be challenged, and this book certainly does. Uh, so do our Lutheran confessions. Um, and yet at the same time, there's further questions that come from it. Who's, who's to say Peter is um, the first pope, so to speak, or, or even bishop of Rome? And who's to say that it's Peter's successor at Rome that is to be the one that continues in this inheritance, so to speak, of the divine right to govern not only the Church, but also the world. So That's even if great. we set aside our whole struggle with Church-State relations and, and how, how that's kind of taken various forms in various regions, what about the Church side alone? And I think that, that in itself uh, should be our focus. It seems to me, and uh, one more thing on what the Catholic Church teaches about this itself, that, that that third point that was brought up in the power and primacy of the Pope, that, so the first point was that the Pope is the supreme bishop in the Church by divine right. Second point was the Church that the Pope has both swords by divine right. The third point is that it's necessary to believe these things to be saved. That's also how Unum Sanctum says, we, we decree, we yeah. exhort, or whatever, that it is necessary for the salvation of every human being to believe, to, to accept the supremacy of the Pope, or something like that. Um, it, it, it seems to me, do you think this is a fair statement? Whenever, whenever I visit or talk with um, Catholic theologians, they've got all sorts of diversity in their doctrine. I mean, they, they're all over the place when it comes to salvation, when it comes to revelation, when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture, when it comes to the role of authority, when it comes to their understanding of the sacrifice of the Mass, the role of the saints, what, what God's grace is, the, the, the meaning of purgatory. There, there's just there's a huge theological diversity. I mean, I think the theological diversity 
in the Roman Catholic Church rivals the the theological diversity in the in the so-called Protestant Church. But there's one thing that they all agree on, and that is that the Pope's in charge. I mean, that's like the that's like the unit when yeah. they say that we're the one church. That's what they mean. We all, in some ways, acknowledge the authority of the Pope. Yeah, and and really, to become a Roman Catholic, yeah, you go through catechesis and so forth, and they'll have all sorts of classes. But ultimately, it's a, are, are you willing to submit yourself to the Pope's authority? Yeah. I mean, that's, okay. that's it. You can believe what you like. Uh, I mean, you see this playing out, at least politically, a bit today with various governors and senators and so forth that are Roman Catholic and yet are pushing a very uh, pro-abortion agenda. And the question is, well, should they be communed? Are they, are they Roman Catholic? Well, they're submitting to the Pope, in, at least by name, and yet certainly not to his teachings. And there's a great array of diversity there. Okay, so take so as well as doctrinal. Yeah. So so take us into this book that is then bringing the critique against these papal claims from the Eastern Orthodox yeah. perspective. Yeah. Well, so in the introduction, it has this nice, and I think it's very helpful. But it says uh, honesty. So it's based on this ecumenical dialogue, and it says honesty is really the most important dimension here, as was shown by Pope Paul VI himself when he said in 1967 that the Pope, as we all know, is undoubtedly the gravest obstacle in the path of ecumenism. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. so Pope Paul VI says, we, we know this, but here's, here's the difficulty. Um, and it's there's optimism that I think should come through with some of these writings and the, the dialogue is being pushed forward and challenged. On the other hand, there's a great pessimism in my mind. Like, what is Rome going to do? Because it's not like they can say that the Pope, sorry guys, we got it wrong. Pope's actually not by divine right. Uh, he's, he's just kind of first among equals. They can't say that because the Pope has already said otherwise. So, I mean, you can't, this is it's a crazy thing, but you can't repent. And, and you can't actually say you were wrong. That, you oh, can't man. say that you've um, harmed many, many people, the, the unity of the Church, in some, at least in its external form. Uh, you can't say any of that. So how, how is this ecumenical conversation going to go forward if you can't, Say that the Pope is not by divine right, uh, or uh, is it necessary for salvation to submit to Him and His authority? I, I don't know how that's going to play out. I got. I, I think we got to explore that a little bit more because, so it, hmm, so the Catholic Church is on. It's on two horns in some ways because, on the one hand, as soon as you assert the infallibility of the Pope. Which is, a, which is part of this, right? That the Pope has the authority to teach in an infallible manner when he speaks ex cathedra, when he declares matters of life and doctrine, and so forth. So, the, so, mm -hmm. that, you, so that the infallibility of the Pope to, it must be maintained, but at the same time, the Catholic Church has this idea of, how, what, how do they talk about it? A growth in doctrine, so that there's a yeah, progressive so, revelation, yeah. that God's truth is being revealed in, in more in fuller ways. So in some ways, they have to say the doctrine is, is is changing, but it's not different. 
and and so right. you you so you can't repent of it. It can be new, but you're always going back and reinterpreting the old stuff. And you're 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 in a you're in a you're in a very difficult spot because you can never you can never be sure. You can never be true. They they they're trying to have this sort of theological certainty from the infallibility of the Pope, but they undo it with the idea of the growth in doctrine. Right. And, okay, so it, that that's a good jumping-off point into this one particular article in here that I have found utterly fascinating is, let me see who wrote it. It's some Greek name. I don't know who it is. Uh, maybe Nicholas Athanasius. And, that is and whoever's listening that knows this stuff will probably say, oh, you dummy, how don't you know him? But uh, he's got this like 50-page article in here, and it is, it's really an incredible article because what he does is he, he starts by saying, before we even get into the debate over whether Rome's claims are right or not, we, we need to ask, ask the question ultimately is, what is primacy? What does it even mean to say that there is a primacy? And what he does is he walks through the historical, um, and what triggered this is this idea of this development of doctrine that Rome has, but he walks through the history, and he'll start with the New Testament itself, and uh, there's actually two other articles in this book that really address the New Testament witness to Peter, and can you read out of the New Testament what Rome claims of him, even in its nascent form, let's say. But, but set that aside, let's look at um, the main exponents of Roman papal primacy claims. And, and he jumps first to Cyprian, because Cyprian has the most exhaustive treatment of the Church, in the, at least in the first few centuries. Because this Athanasius, or Athanasius, whatever his name is, he's convinced that this is, as he says, if we're to solve the power of or the problem of the primacy within the church, our starting point must be ecclesiology. Yeah, I'm going to cut you. I'm going to cut you off there, Pastor Paul, because we got to go to this break. This is a now you have the the theological cliffhanger. You're listening to CrossFits. That's Pastor Jeff Boyle, and I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church in Rural Colorado. We're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back to to pick it up there with the claims of Cyprian, how they match up with the scriptures, and what they mean for the Roman Catholic claim that the Pope is number one. The supremacy of Peter uh, belongs to the Pope. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Just a minute. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. 
And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. The debut of the King James Bible in 1611 was not without controversy. The motivation for the Bible had as much to do with the politics as religion. To ease strife between the Puritans and the bishops of the Church of England, the king called the Hampton Court Conference of 1604. Although Puritans proposed a new Bible translation, the bishops organized a project to revise the bishop's Bible. Many early editions of the King James Version included significant and embarrassing printing errors. It wasn't until revisions in the 1760s from Cambridge and Oxford that the translations, punctuation, and spelling were modernized and standardized. Engage with the Bible, this book of all books, transmitted over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. All right, welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and Pastor Jeff Boyle is over there. We're talking about the Roman Catholic claim that the Pope's number one, the primacy of Peter, the office held by the Pope, the three claims that the Pope has uh, chief bishop by divine right, that the Pope has both swords, that you've got to believe this to be saved. And Pastor Boyle is bringing a modern Eastern Orthodox critique of this, and our friend Nicholas Asanophagus, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Snuffleupagus. That's, that's not it. <laughs> Oops. Has brought us to Nicholas, the New Testament claim. It said, hey, can you Nicholas get to the... the Greek. Okay, oh, Nicholas the Greek. Can you get to the claims that the Catholic Church makes by the New Testament? And then and then what about Cyprian, which I'm interested... So, okay, so, so, so pick it up there, Pastor Boyle. Okay, so Cyprian, he claims that ecclesiology, this Nicholas the Greek, claims that, Nic- that ecclesiology is the way... To, to solve this, or at least those are the questions we need to be asking. And so he runs to Cyprian, who's known for his strong ecclesiological sort of framework that he provides to the Church. And, and what Cyprian does, ultimately, is he says that um, because Christ is one, so the Church must be one. And yet he runs then to St. Paul's use of the body, where he says that uh, there is one body, and we are all members of it. And then he, he applies that to the church. And he says, there are many churches, and yet together they are one body. And as a body needs a head, so the church scattered throughout needs a head. And so this, this idea of the Catholic or the ecumenical church, as Cyprian's framing it, is such that individually, each church is a member or a part, but, and this is the the key thing, is not in itself the Catholic Church or the whole church. And and so when that, and he calls this idea, Nicholas the Greek calls this idea, the universal church. And he says, the universal church mindset is what we moderns, and even ever since Cyprian, for the most part, have understood and thought the Church to be. And with this universal Church mindset, we've read the claims of the New Testament even through that lens, and we've read even earlier fathers like Ignatius or or Clement, 
or Tertullian or Irenaeus as if they were, um, as if they had a universal church mindset. But what he does is he shows the failures of Cyprian's construct to be uh, an idyllic concept of the church, that it's not actually that way, nor do the scriptures give us that, and nor can that be sustained. So he, he actually runs through the whole argument of Cyprian, and he, he presents it well, and he's thinking, wow, this is very convincing, yet at the same time, I, uh, it's, it's not what Scripture gives us. And then all of a sudden, Nicholas the Greek pulls the rug out, and he says, that's why it was a failure. <laughs> and <laughs> and he says, that's not the way the Church was set up, and there's a reason why it doesn't sound like the New Testament. There's uh, why why is it that the New Testament never says that or, or gives the claim that Peter is the Pope or that he is has a power that the other apostles don't have and and where is this uh, given and so obviously Matthew 16 will be a focal point of the discussion but what Nicholas the Greek claims is that the ecclesiology of the primitive church is what he calls it from the New Testament uh, through the first couple centuries up until Cyprian, really, is not a universal church mindset, but he calls it a Eucharistic ecclesiology. Oh. And and it's fascinating because, I mean, he's, he's Orthodox, right? He's not a Lutheran. But when he's expressing this, I mean, we, we Lutherans think of, our, you know, our ecclesiology is... Uh, on the one hand, incredibly simple, and and I would argue its simplicity is is equally as profound. But we say very simply when we're defining what the church is, we say that our churches teach that that one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught, and the sacraments are correctly administered. Oh now, man. That when, that's no, so, yeah, so that's let me Eucharistic ecclesiology. Okay, that, go on. that's that's this is just for, okay. So the idea of the universal church is so we hear the church is the body of Christ, and so the picture in our own imagination is that every Christian kind of wherever is just part of this big sort of invisible body, and that because a body has one head, so the church also has to have one head. And he says the whole pic- it's not that it's so the question of who's the head is the wrong question that it, the, he's saying the whole picture is what's wrong the church is is a is a bunch of tables scattered around the world in the midst of our enemies where the Lord feeds us his his promises and his life yeah yeah Ugh. and and that every church every uh every church where the sacrament is is in its fullness, the Catholic Church. Wow. You know, let's say small C Catholic, let's say, you know, ecumenical, the, the, the whole church, because Christ cannot be divided. That's and he's got, this, he's got this great little section where, when I was reading it, I, you know, I never had Professor Nagel, um, I, I don't know if you ever took any classes from him, but, uh, but I've read a lot of his stuff and listened to some of his sermons and I mean he's he's one of the guys that I respect deeply but one of one thing Nagel would always say is that our, our Lord was pretty poor at math uh, and, and and you couldn't just simply apply our, our logical ordering of things in our mind uh, mathematically to our Lord 
And Nicholas the Greek uh, does that same sort of thing. He'll say, um, uh, here's, here's just a little section. He'll say, at first sight, the Eucharistic doctrine may look paradoxical, but the paradox does not attach to the Church. It is in our own empirical consciousness. The fact is that a large number of local churches do exist in empirical reality, as they did in the days of the Apostles. Does this mean that one church cannot exist? Only a number of churches of God in Christ exist? The impossibility of such a conclusion is absolutely clear. There cannot be a plurality of churches of God in Christ, for Christ is one and unique. And then he says, we cannot very well apply Euclidean arithmetic, since ecclesiology works with quantities that cannot be reckoned up. One plus one is two, is something we are used to in empirical consciousness, but where ecclesiology is concerned, to add up the local churches would be a waste of time. We should always have a total no larger than each item of the addition sum. He says one plus one in ecclesiology is still one. Every local church manifests the fullness of the church of God. This reminds me of the vision that that John has of the church in Revelation, where the the first phase is he hears the number, 12,000 from each adds up to 144,000, and then he looks, and there's an innumerable multitude from every tribe and nation. And that's the, yeah. so this is the church. You, you Okay, so you could, God can count it, but you, you just, you can't. The, the, this breaks uh-huh. down because it it is, all of us are hidden with God in Christ. Ah, that's really fantastic. Now, yeah. this this, by the way, gives me occasion for my favorite thing, I just want to. This is. I'll, I'll admit to you, that's a slightly skew to the to the direction of the mm-hmm. conversation, but I really love this. So I pulled up my favorite Unum Sanctum, thirteen o two is by the way when it was. Written. Yeah. Okay. Good. Was that Pope Urban II or something like that? Uh, let's see. I can tell you that who, right who, here. Who Unum it? Sanctum. Pope Pope Boniface the Eighth. Oh, okay. Boniface the Eighth. Good. Remember Boniface the Eighth. Now uh, I want to read it's you good. a line in here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this so much. This is the best. Okay, and I just want to get your reaction to it. It says, "Therefore, the one and only church of the one and only church, there is one body and one head, not two heads like a monster. That is Christ and the vicar of Christ, Peter, and the successor of Peter, since the Lord speaking to Peter himself said, feed my sheep <laughs> wait 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 can you reread that doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> there's one and only church in the one of the one and only church there's one body and one head not two heads like a monster that is christ and the vicar of christ peter and the successor of peter since the lord speaking just, to peter himself said feed my sheep do you I, those are that, three things I, that's what I say. I was like, it's not two. It's not, the church doesn't have two heads like a monster. It has one head: Jesus and Peter and all the popes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's set that aside. Some somehow <laughs> that must have made sense. Probably better in Latin. Uh, <laughs> something maybe lost in translation. Here's okay. Here's the kicker because I know you always when we talk, you say, "Okay, we're out of time," and I'm like, "Come on." So, yeah, that's right. Uh, it's going to happen pretty soon. Here, it is going to happen. So um, here's a move that Nicholas the Greek makes that is so
so often in my own reading missing from these sorts of conversations. And and it is, I mean, this is what I like about this article. He, he makes these distinctions that, uh, you know, are subtle, but incredibly important. So here he says, let me pick it up here. He says, the Church of God lives fully present in the Eucharistic assembly of the local churches, but each of them has a different way and degree of making the presence actual in its own life. A local church will have higher authority of witness if it has a greater realization of the presence of the Church of God. Though a lo- though the local churches are by nature equal in value, they are not necessarily equal in authority. This difference in authority causes hierarchy among them. If there is a hierarchy of churches, there must also be a church to head the hierarchy, therefore a church that takes the first place. Its act of bearing witness to events in other churches has a sovereign value, and its act of reception is of decisive importance. But to put it another way, this church holds a twofold priority of authority and of love, which means it makes a sacrificial gift of itself to the others. If the priority is of this nature, we cannot possibly say that a church which possesses priority has power over the other churches. It never possessed or could possess power, for the power of a church having a priority over the others would mean power over the body of Christ. Now, let me back off from him for just a second. Yeah, that's right. In only like 30 seconds, by the way, Pastor Boyle. Sure. Okay, well, in 30 seconds, the distinction he's making is a distinction between power and authority. And power is something that is within. You know, it drives me nuts when you're watching football and they say, oh, we hit him with authority. Well, every time there's a tackle or a hit, whether weak or strong, as long as they don't throw the flag, is with authority. Uh, to, to hit outside of authority is a penalty. He's been authorized to, you know, on defense to make that hit. Uh, power, though, is what they mean. He hit them with power, strength, with dunamis, as we get it from the Greek, the dynamite. And, and, and that's the, the hinge that our Lutheran confessions also noted, this issue of by divine right. Does the Pope have a power? That is, is there something within him as Pope that others do not have? And uh, And that's one side of the question. The other is then authority. So so we may have, uh, one church may have the authority to, to in this way, oh, I don't know, set the, the liturgical agenda, and the other churches will, because they respect that authority, gather oh, under it. But, yeah, we, you got it well, cut well, off by the time. Here's the point. When you have Christ at his word, you have all of him, all of his kingdom, all of his name, all of his church. Ah, Pastor Boyle, thanks for bringing that to us. You're listening to Cross Defense. Talk to you next week. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio.
Find past episodes and support cross-defense at kfuo.org. Thanks for being a cross-defense podcaster, for downloading this. If you found something helpful, we'd love to hear back from you, and we'd love it if you shared it with a friend. If you've got questions that you'd like to see addressed on future episodes, you can send a note to me at the website, wolfmuller.co slash contact, or there's a contact button on there. You can find it. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've got suggestions or ideas, and we'll talk to you next week.